Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Welcome to Season 5. I am so happy to be at this point, almost two years into the debrief. I continue to be amazed by this community and the bonds that are forming within our network. I'm honored to be featuring Jim Husson today. Jim and I thought it would be fun to talk about identity as an opener for this season. I personally have just made a career transition, and Jim has made several throughout his career. So we talk about how and when to make a move, but more importantly, why understanding your institution really matters. Listen on to learn more, but first, let's hear more about our guest. Jim Husson is the Senior Vice President for University Advancement at Boston College, overseeing the university's development and alumni relations functions. He joined the development team in 2002 as the Vice President for Development and was promoted to his current position in June 2004. Jim and his colleagues spearheaded Light the World, the university's 150th anniversary campaign, which concluded in 2016 having raised a record of $1.6 billion in gifts from more than 140,000 alumni, parents, and friends. Jim has more than 30 years of experience in educational advancement and has served as the Vice President for Development for Brown University and as the Director of Major Gifts for Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Early in his career, he worked for two private secondary schools, Northfield Mount Hermon School and Cushing Academy, and for the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Jim plays a leadership role in the Council for Advancement and Supportive Education, CASE, a professional organization for fundraising in higher ed. He is a graduate of the University of Rochester and Northfield Mount Hermon School. He is also a BC parent. Now let's get started. Jim, welcome to the debrief. Thank you, Catherine. It's wonderful to be here. And uh, I've really enjoyed listening to the previous podcasts, I, I think what you're doing is important, particularly now that we're all so physically distanced and you know not going to conferences and things as much. And so you're providing a point of connection that I think is really, really helpful. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I know we were joking about this when we were talking because I said, you know, after looking at the lineup you've had, I, I'm not sure I have anything to add. And you you chuckled. And do you remember what you said when I said that? Yeah, everyone feels that way. Yeah, everyone feels that way. So we'll see. We'll see. But I you know, it's a pretty, as you know, it's a pretty tight knit community. And so everyone you're talking to, well, not everyone, most of the folks you've been talking to are folks I, I consider to be good friends and mentors and people I've worked alongside. So it's, it's great to, to be in that, that company. Everyone really is connected. Oh yeah. I joke. I was talking to Susan Fagan a while ago, maybe this is probably a month or so ago. And I was teasing her. I said, Susan, you know, I have a little project that I'm interested in. And she said, what's that? I said, I want to map out the Susan Fagan coaching tree. Susan and I will occasionally talk football. And I said, you know, you talk about these famous coaches, you know, who have been in the NFL or collegiate football for a long time. And the really great ones, you know, are great because you look at their coaching trees and you look at where people who have been fortunate enough to work for them have gone and what they're doing. And I said, Susan, you may have one of the best coaching trees of anybody in the profession. (laughs) That one out. Yeah. So in terms of identity, I want to ask you about mission and purpose of institutions and how they represent themselves 
and how critical that is for advancement professionals to understand that and fully wrap their arms around that. It's a really interesting question, I think, for a whole whole bunch of reasons right now. I'll speak first at this through the lens of higher ed, and I'll say at the outset, I've only ever worked on the educational side of things. I've worked in both secondary schools and higher ed. But one of the things that you know you, you pick up on when you work in higher ed is how many colleges and universities are really, really strive to sound distinctive in how they represent themselves. You think of this first and foremost in admissions, right? You know, when you're, you're talking about representing yourself to high school seniors, beyond where we sit on the US News and World Ranking or where we are geographically, how do we represent what we do as an institution as being distinctive compared to any other colleges or universities that a high school senior might be going on on their on their tour. And the challenge with that is that, you know, we all do at a basic level the same things, right? We engage in research, we contribute to advancing societal knowledge, we of course educate students, we graduate students, they go out into the world. But I've been spending probably more time lately thinking about just how important it is to really drill down into that question that you just touched on what is an institution's sense of purpose that is truly distinctive? How do you both represent that? And why is that important to understand? I think it's obviously critically important, not just for the practical reason that you want to make sure you stand out as an institution, because I believe each college and university is unique. You know, it's unique because we're, you know, we're organizations that are very human in the way in which we're constructed. We're, we're constructed of people. We educate people. We graduate people from these institutions. Faculty work for us. Because human beings are unique, we then are unique as a result of that. But I think we're also unique because we have different ways in which we each kind of look at the world and think about our work. For me, thinking about that notion of what, what is it that makes the institution I work for distinctive, the institution I might consider working for distinctive, and then how is that going to inform my work? How does knowing that make a difference to, to the work I'm going to be asked to do as an advancement professional? And I think the reason that's important is simply because the work we do is so very personal interacting with people who care deeply about our institutions or who we want to care deeply about institutions who have about, you know, in the case of alumni, the most personal experience you can have with an institution. You know, they spent four years of their formative years at that institution. And so I think it's important as advancement professionals, and I believe philanthropy is an act of love, right? I believe philanthropy is a human act, not a balance sheet act at its core. And so I think because of that, you can't understand how a, an alum, to use that example, connects to your institution in a unique and personal way. And then how that's going to impact you and the work you do, I think that you're probably never going to be as professionally fulfilled as you can be. And you're probably never going to be as professionally successful as you can be. Especially on the admissions side, it makes me think about your institution's reputation. But we all know that a reputation is the first layer yes. that then needs to be peeled back. Completely. In purpose, in purpose, right? And I think there are aspects to universities, some universities that are probably fixed or at least fixed for a long time. But there are things that also evolve over time. And that will, you know, and that's also different from institutions. Institutions. Some are kind of more fixed than others. Yeah, you know, I worked at Harvard early in my I was going to say Harvard came right to mind when you talk yes. about this. 
<laughs> fixed. That's right. And, you know, and, and it's in a way it's not fair, right? Harvard is changing, but it's, it's changing, you know, and I, one of my, one of the people I work closely with at Harvard had this great line and said, yeah, Harvard changes course the way a battleship changes course, right? Not on a dime. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. very true. Other institutions, I mean, Boston College, not long ago in the life of higher ed in the early 1970s had a negative balance sheet and the proposition that was on the table was do we become part of the umass system and boston college today is where it is today that's an example of an institution that in not a long period of time has sort of at one level retained its core sense of purpose its core identity its core focus but at another level evolved in some important ways to sort of allow it to animate that purpose in a way that was relevant to the kind of students it wanted to serve. So what do you think are the best ways that people can, like if someone's listening right now and they're like, oh, wow, I never even thought about purpose beyond educating students or granting degrees or whatever it is, like, you know, do you look to the past, the present, the future? How can we study this in our own Yeah, life? it's a it's a really good question. And I think that if, um, if I look at this through the lens of, of someone who's considering a new role, right, right, I think the starting place is that kind of both experiential exploration and conversational. So if I'm looking at a, a role and I want to know, is this a place where I can be fulfilled and happy? I want to know, you know, first of all, I probably want to see if I can have some conversations with some people on the team. So if I'm interviewing, I'm, I'm really hoping that I have time to ask my own questions in the interview. Uh, and I think the questions you choose to ask in the interview have two benefits. One is you learn some things that are important to you. And two, those questions are also signals to your prospective employer about your strength as a candidate. Ask questions that are gonna help you understand a little bit about the personality of the place. You know, I asked so many questions when I was interviewing at JPEN. I bet you did. And were they, help, were they helpful to you in understanding what you were going to be going for and why you were attracted to the job? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, to the point where I, I really felt like I was interviewing them. See, and I love that, right? I mean, I, 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 I will say if I'm interviewing a candidate, I am much happier if we run out of time because the person I'm interviewing has more questions for me than we have time with. Then I've had interviews with candidates where the candidate, you know, I always try and leave at least 15 minutes at the end for, you know, candidate questions. And I'll signal that to the candidate at some point. And it's interesting to me because there are times, not often, but there are times when a candidate will say, you know, I think we've covered everything. Um, no. And yeah, no, right. But I think that I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of the candidate's skill set for the job. We've hired some people who have done that and they've been great professionals. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that people get nervous when they go into an interview situation and they prepare so much for what am I going to be asked? And I want to be able to respond to those questions in a way that's compelling that you miss the fact that you may have an opportunity to ask questions of your own and those questions are important. So I think, you know, going back to your question about how do you kind of suss that out? I think it's learning from the people who are there. You know, what is, you know, what is the personality of the place? I think a good question to ask on that front is, you know, how do the, how do the alumni, what are the best things of this university or this school in the eyes of the alumni? What are the biggest challenges? If, you know, a question I've, I've asked, you know, alums is if you had to describe this place, your experience at Boston College in just a sentence, you know, what would you say? That's a great you, learn, you, you know, you learn a lot, 
you know, from those kinds of questions about what is this place really like? Mm -hmm. You know, taking the identity conversation further into professionals as individuals, do you think it's more important to have the right fit with the institution than have the right next role for a career arc? Because that's another thing I think people are weighing right now. Increasingly, those things are linked, you know, because I do think there are moments in your career where you may decide you have a skill you want to develop or something you want to hone and you choose a place to work because it may be the best at that, you know, best opportunity you have for that, but you're not sure about the fit. Let's say you've started as an annual giving professional and you've never asked for big gifts in that role. You're thinking you may want to be a major gift officer. So you want to be in a job where you're going to be asked to be asking, you know, prospective donors for bigger, higher level gifts. You know, you may not have the whole package of perfect fit of institution and job opportunity that allows me to do that. And, and so you may have to make a choice there, but I think as you get deeper into your career, I do think that, that finding places that are, are fits for you, that where you're going to be animated by what the institution is accomplishing. When I think about people who have been very successful in different roles in the advancement organizations I've worked for, one common thread is they tend to be both passionate about the institution, not just passionate about the work. doesn't mean they have to sort of, the institution is the end-all be-all, but they have to have a certain level of investment in what the institution is trying to accomplish. And they're intellectually curious about what the institution is doing. They spend time on campus. They drink up all that the faculty have to offer in terms of what's going on in the work on of the institution at that level. That's hard to do if there's a disconnect between you and the kind of institution you're representing. And so for me, I'll, you know, one, one specific example of this is early in my career, one of my stops was at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard. Um, and I had never worked at a professional school, right? So it was my first experience working with professional school alumni. And I loved a lot about the work I was being asked to do. I had terrific colleagues, but there was just a disconnect between the idea of representing a design school and I love architecture, but it just, you know, it just wasn't enough to sustain, me. you know, architecture 24 seven wasn't a fit for me. You know, if I was going to advance in my career, I knew I couldn't really advance there because I was able to do it, you know, kind of logically. Right. But I couldn't sort of invest in it fully. And I think that's, that's kind of an example of where institutional mission and purpose and fit plays a role. In, in what you're going to do and how you do it. Really great example. We were also talking earlier about this idea of making a move to glean a new skill set. I mean, you referenced that with the annual giving to the major giving, but I was telling you that that's a little bit about what um, inspired my most recent move. Do you think that's okay? I mean, when you advise, I'm sure you mentor lots of professionals and when you advise them, is that something that you encourage? 100%. I think our job is, you know, as managers and, and if you're in a role leading a team, I think you have to be both champions of your institution and champions of your people. And, and what that means is recognizing that, you know, most of your, your, your colleagues, most of your team members, you know, the people in your organization 
you know, are at points in their career where they're still, they're actively developing their skills to realize their potential ultimate role and the role they're sitting in isn't that ultimate role. Um, and so the way I suggest, and when I was on the faculty at Seifer uh, at up, at, up at Dartmouth for many years, one of the things that with, in conversations with my advisees, I would often say, because there was mostly early stage career professionals, is I would, you know, I would often be asked, what's the right time? How many years should you stay in a job? It was like, it was like that old Tootsie Roll commercial, you know, how many lifts does it yeah. take to get to the Tootsie Roll pot? Yeah. And there is no, there is no one number. But the way I would ask, suggest people should think about it is, is think about your learning curve. You take a new job, you know, you, you've got a, probably a big gulp because it's a step up, right? There are things that, you know, where you're looking to develop new skills those early stage, those early months, early years of your job, your learning curve is going to be very steep, right? You're going to be actively learning lots of new things and you're going to be growing and developing your skill set at a pretty rapid pace. Then at some point, it begins to plateau a little bit. And that's where the mix of your own sort of personal satisfaction and institutional value completely align. Because when that plateau starts to happen, you're now realizing all the benefits of that hard work you did to develop your skills. You're seeing the impact. You're seeing the, the joy, you're experiencing the joy of the results of the work you've been doing. The institution is too. But then after a certain point of that, you have to begin to ask yourself, is there another set of skills that I'm not developing? What's my next step? What's my next stretch? And if your current role doesn't offer you that, or your current institution doesn't offer you that, that's that time for that candid conversation with your manager in which you say, you know, I'm at a point where I love my work, I'm doing very well, but I've plateaued a little bit. And so you explore their way, you know, you talk about the skills you want to develop next. Are there ways to have that opportunity in your current institution, in your current assignment? And if they're not, hopefully you have the kind of relationship with your boss where your boss says, let's talk about where that might be for you. Um, and you explore that next role. So I think in terms of skill set development, you know, for me, Early in my career, I was, I worked primarily, I worked in a secondary school environment. And then I worked for the graduate school of design for a little while. I went back to another secondary school. And I realized at that point, all of my experience was in small shops because the design school, in spite of being at Harvard was, you know, every tub on its own bottom, very small shop mm -hmm. and doing a lot of different things. And so my job may have been in annual giving, but you know, this at Chapin, you know, you're doing, you're wearing a lot of different hats and having a lot of different responsibilities on any given day. Yeah. Um, I felt that I wanted to sort of have the experience of a developing my ability as a big gift fundraiser. I wanted to see if I could work with, you know, wealth holders at the highest level and, and be part of a team that was motivating them to make major, major gifts, significant gifts. I wanted to see if I could do that in a larger ecosystem, a more complex ecosystem. And so I had the opportunity to take a job at Harvard as a major gift officer. Um, I actually took a pay cut to take that job um, because my, my job. I'm, I'm glad you're sharing that because that's very real. It's very real, right? And it's you very, did that thinking long-term. I did that thinking long-term. And actually it was interesting because, you know, my wife, you know, we, you know, we were married, you know, not for a long time at that point. We were, you know, not, we didn't yet have kids, but we knew that was coming. And I was worried about this, you know, and I talked to my wife about it. And, and Lori had this great observation, this great insight, where she said, you know, look at it this way. If you were in a profession where getting a graduate degree was essential to your next step, 
we'd figure out a way to make that happen. That would be an expense for us. So think of this loss of income as not as a loss, but think of it as an investment in your professional development. And that was a great, you know, very helpful. It gave me the courage I needed to do that. And, and I'm so glad I did because, you know, every yeah. single year I spent there, I learned a ton. I was surrounded by great mentors and it was absolutely pivotal to everything I've done since. Were you an FAS doing that? I was, I was. And so, so Susan Fagan hired me and, <laughs> uh, and it was, uh, and she only hired me because the person who was the director of major gifts, who I was doing all these interviews with over months and months and months had left for another role just as I was getting close to the end result. And so my, my last conversation, I never met her, was with Susan. And I kind of knew this was kind of it. And, uh, and, and so Susan, you know, I tried to make Susan never regret it. I think she probably only did once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, that was such a brilliant move because the, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at college is probably one of the absolute best boot camps to be doing that work. And, you know, funny enough, we're talking to each other at these totally different stages of our careers and we're talking about different institutions, but I did in some ways the equivalent of that being in the central office at Columbia, but then I had the inverted experience of going to an independent school from that setting. So how interesting (laughs) um, to be comparing those. What were some of the things that factored in for you, right, in making the in making the change and moving, you know, your inverted experience? What were some of the the things that? Because I'm getting the sense from our conversations, you were very thoughtful about thinking about what you wanted to do next. So I'm just curious to know what were some of the things that went through your mind. I think for me, I loved having my lane and being so independent, being able to chart out my strategy and going forth and doing it. And I think now looking back, maybe I didn't realize what, in some ways, what a luxury that is to mm-hmm. have that leeway and that runway and that ability to design your own, what is it like color by number? You know, I got to decide and then it worked so I could decide again. And now the work that I'm doing at Chapin at a small independent school with a team of 11, everything I do impacts another part of the, the equation. and in a way, what I, what I wanted out of that and what I'm getting and what I love is that it really requires you to think strategically, to think about the whole picture. And that's leadership skills, which is what I wanted to develop. I was feeling like, how could I lead just being in my own lane? Right. It's a really good question. And I think, and I can imagine how at Chapin, you are being stretched in those ways. And, and I'm sure, and I know, right, they're benefiting immensely from you know, the kind of experience you bring and the perspectives you bring from, you know, from the work you were doing at Columbia. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Because, you know, you you touched on something that I'm curious, I'm also curious about your perspective on when we were talking a minute ago about, you know, how, how people in the profession make decisions about jobs they're going to choose and the sort of role that institutional reputation or purpose or identity plays in that. What do you hear from your contemporaries? You know, we've we've been reading a lot today about, you know, the great resignation, people sort of really rethinking their, you know, their values and, you know, or looking at their values and how it aligns with what they choose to do. I'm curious to know when you and your your contemporaries, people at similar stages of a career to where you are now, talk about next steps and what you're thinking of, 
how does that all come into play when it when it comes to how they feel about the institutions they're working for, what makes a difference between them feeling great or not so great, and how it informs whether they're going to leave that job and go someplace else or even do something totally different? Is this a big topic? I would say that there isn't a common theme. I think this is a very personal subject. Like I know people who have had really great experiences growing within an organization and being able to stay. But then to your earlier point, that worked in that organization. There are some organizations that aren't designed to help people grow in those same ways for better or for worse. I've, I know someone who decided to work at a smaller place because of this pay cut issue, who was not mm-hmm. actually willing to do that. And one's not necessarily better or worse. But no. I think at the end of the day, what, what is really important for people is to feel like they have a seat at the table, you know, in the yeah. conversations around planning and strategy. And it, it can be the case that that's not happening. When we think about what it is that contributes to, you know, job satisfaction and to things that cause people to stay or leave outside of compensation, compensation is important, right? I'm not, I'm not going to say these things. I want to sort of acknowledge that. But outside of compensation, I think agency is very important. That ability to think that I have agency over my life, the work, the work that I'm doing. I recognize that I have a boss and my boss has to make decisions and it's not a democracy at all, in all times, but I want to feel like I'm respected, that my perspective matters in that. That That's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. And that I, in that if a decision is made that I don't agree with, I at least understand it, or at least people are taking the time to see if you can understand it, right? That, that kind of investment in, in how people at least feel about decisions, I think is, is critical. And then the second thing, and this goes, I think, directly to institutional identity, is I think most people want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And they want to have that feeling of the phrase that was coined by the comparative mythologist, follow your bliss. You know, Joseph Campbell came up with that line. And, you know, the roots of, the roots of that were is in his sort of observation that, you know, there's a lot of lip service paid to sort of, well, people want to find a meaning of life. And he said, no, I don't think people want to find a meaning of life. I don't think that's what people are really going after. What people are going after is they want to have an experience of being alive. They want to have that sense of I'm alive today, right? I'm getting meaning out of this day. And I think you get that when you feel like you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. And you feel like you're working as part of an organization that accomplishes something great. And that thing that is accomplished that is great has meaning to you. Mm-hmm. I think those things are the reason why institutional identity matters. Because if you don't connect to what the institution is doing, what the institution stands for, or worse, if you're on the other side of the fence from it, that's very, very difficult. And, and I think that's where you want to be aligned with where your institution is. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I thought about a lot was how exciting is it to be in an organization where it's all about strong girls and women? I mean, that's totally new for me. Absolutely. A hundred percent in schools that have that, that focus are very needed right now. And well, they've always been needed, but I think they're needed in a particular way right now. And to do it at one of the leading of those kinds of schools, right. Even better because you're setting a, you know, you're setting the pace 
you know, for all the other, other schools like it. When I look back, I've worked for what, six different places over 35 years. And each one has taught me something. I'm who I am today because of each of those places, not just because of each of those jobs. And I think there's a, that's a difference. And that's another reason why I think development is so cool. How should managers listening? I mean, you have this amazing language around this topic, but how do you encourage managers to open these conversations? And also, I know we're all busy, but I think these conversations are critical right now in light of the great resignation and all of these COVID changes that were happening. So what would your advice be for managers who want to maybe either remedy divides that have formed from the pandemic or just ensure that people stay? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, th- I think a couple of things, and I'll say at the outset that I am probably right now for the profession in our organization as concerned for our managers and, and as focused on our managers as I am for anyone in the workforce. Because I think this is a time when I know that if I were an early stage manager during this kind of moment, I'd be tested in ways I'm not sure how well I would have done, frankly, because I, I went, I had the luxury of going through years of being a terrible manager and having great bosses who helped me to become a better manager. I, you know, I was not a very good manager day one. It's a muscle, right? It's a muscle, right? It's completely a muscle. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so very focused on trying to make sure that I'm surrounded by talented managers who bring a diverse set of skills and experiences who are willing to challenge me or whoever it is they work for and who care about their teams. But to, to your point, how do managers do this? I think it's, it begins with a certain sense of humility and recognizing that we don't have the answers and be will, being willing to be a little bit vulnerable in the way you approach your conversations with your people. Being willing to say, I, I'm not sure that the decisions we're making are the right decisions. I, I've encouraged managers to say, if it's a decision that's you know organization-wide and the buck stops with me, I've said to my managers, you, it's okay to say, you know, I'm not sure this is the best decision Jim is making, but it's the, it's the decision we're making in the moment. You know, my boss, the president of BC has this great framework where he says, you know, he tries to make the decision between a good decision and the right decision are not the same thing. He said, you can make a decision that was the right decision in the moment because you were thoughtful about it. You collected all the data you needed. You talked to the right people and you made that decision and that was the right decision. And it remains the right decision, but it may have turned out to be a bad decision in retrospect, right? Because other information comes into play and you look back on it and you say, yeah, that, that really didn't work out the way we wanted to do. And he said, that's an example of a good decision that was the wrong decision. And a and lot of those decisions happened in the last two years. A lot of those decisions know. have happened, as we know, in the past two years. So I think for managers in this environment, Catherine, I think it's first and foremost about being in conversation with your people. Also, clarity really matters because, you know, when I say be in conversation with your people, that can suggest that, well, you know, it's just all going to be consensus and with their, we're gonna, you know, consensus is probably impossible to find right now. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that I noticed that people are hungry for is as much clarity as we can give them and as much context as we can give them. Hmm. And so, I think those two things also are things that we, in my office, we really work on. If we are firm on something or we're clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it, we want to be good about communicating that. Information vacuums are terrible things. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about how our decisions we're making communicated throughout the organization. If we're relying on it to happen through the units and through the managers, 
do we have a backstop there so that you know somebody who may not make that meeting is finding out about it a different way? And then I think context is also important. That's something that we often miss. People want to know the why, you know, remote work versus on-site work and how that's playing itself out. And there, I think, you know, the context is critically important. Invariably, for a lot of institutions, there are going to be decisions that not everyone is going to be happy with. If you can provide context, you can at least say, we're going to agree to disagree, right? But, you're, you know, I never want somebody to say, I don't know why you're doing this. They can at least say, I know why, but I don't agree. Correct. I know why, but I don't agree. Right. That's fine. And we'll learn, we'll learn from that. The transitions that you've made. I just want to end with that. You know, you, you've had six stops along the way, Harvard, you double dipped, but how you've made these decisions around your transitions, because I know when we first talked, we were thinking about people who are considering transitions and just to shed some light, because clearly you've done something right. You're sitting <laughs> at the helm at BC. You've had an amazing career that's that's still happening. What guided your decisions? The people I'm going to be working with and for and thinking about that. I'll, I'll never forget this comment when I was a college senior applying for, for advancement jobs. And one of the jobs I was applying for I wish I could remember the name of this person who said this to me, but he was in a, he was in a leadership role at a college, a liberal arts college. And, you know, he's talking to me, somebody who had never worked professionally in anything, right? It was my first job after college. And he said, you know, my advice to you is you look at opportunities and, you know, you think of these jobs that you might have a chance to work at. He said, look carefully at the people because advancement is highly interpersonal. And the way he framed it is he said, if you worked for a place for a number of years, Look at those people because you'll become a little bit like them and they'll become a little bit like you. It's exactly what he said. And I just thought that was such a great insight. And I think wow. there's just there's just a lot of truth to that. It's always been in the back of my mind when I thought about roles I've wanted to take. I came to Boston College, you know, from Brown, and it was kind of counterintuitive. You know, Boston College is a Jesuit Catholic university. I'm not Catholic and I was never educated by the Jesuits. But when I met the people who were on the board of trustees, who worked in the organization, you know, the president of the university, when I looked a little deeper what the university stood for, and, you know, I learned about the Jesuit sort of mission of being men and women for others, those things resonated with me very deeply. And I think that had I not taken that step of sort of thinking about the people, I think I would have made a cursory decision and said, yeah, how could I ever work for, you know, Boston College, right? I know Doug Flutie, I don't know anything else. Um, <laughs> and I would have been the worst for it because it's been, been incredibly, incredibly uh, rewarding for me to be part of this, part of this community, even though I don't connect for, to it in, a, in the sort of traditional way that a lot of people who work for the university do connect to it. And so I think those are, those are things for me that have always informed my decisions. What a beautiful way to bring us right back to identity, <laughs> right? How you, yeah. you identified with the people you maybe on the surface level, it wasn't a connection, but when you went deeper, when you unpeeled the layers, it was right. Thank you so much, Jim. This conversation has been so much fun. Same here. I would love to end with my signature question, which is what do you know for sure? The best days of our profession are ahead of us because we are thriving as a profession 
because of the people who are entering into the profession today. And they are raising issues that have never been raised in the profession that need to be raised. This could be another podcast conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are so rigorous in their commitment to the work and their standards are very high. And they are just, they bring both skill and dedication to the craft in ways that I just, and I, and I say this as somebody who I had, I had 12 years with 350 early stage professionals at Dartmouth. And every summer I felt like it was, I was working for the admissions office at Boston College because every summer I would say, you're the best class so far. Um, <laughs> and so I, I truly believe the best days, you know, there are a lot of challenges in the profession right now. There are a lot of challenges in the philanthropic space right now. So don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't mean to, you know, be, you know, viewing this. I'm not viewing this with rose colored glasses. But I am an idealist about them. And I think that when I meet the people who are five years in, three years in, seven years in, first-time managers, I'm just, I'm blown away by the talent. I think the best people who are staying in this profession are the ones who are excited by the challenges that are in front of us and who see the path forward to being being leaders. I mean, true leaders. Wonderful. Thank you so great much, Kim. Catherine, it's been great to speak with you. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch and following your career, which I know is going to be fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Take Bye. care. Bye. Thank you for joining us for season five. If you're thinking about making a move in your career, I highly recommend that you take Jim's comments to heart and really think about what part of a community you love, what part of a community you seek, and how your skills and next move can help move you towards a strong and powerful career. Good luck, and I'll see you next week.